This is a Federal News Network podcast. Exciting as it might seem to join the staff of Congress as a young person, disillusion sometimes sets in fast. One reason, according to my next guest, is low pay. Here with details of congressional pay research, the research director at a think tank called Issue One, Michael Beckel. Mr. Beckel, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. So what have you learned about congressional pay levels and how did you learn it? Issue One recently published a new report that underscores how, especially in entry-level positions, congressional staff are widely and consistently underpaid. We took data from a group called Legistorm, which analyzes all congressional staff pay information, and they've been doing it for years. And we looked at all D.C.-based congressional staffers and found that one in eight congressional staffers in Washington, D.C. is not paid a living wage. And that includes 70% of staff assistants, which are the most common entry-level positions in every member's office on Capitol Hill. And what does that translate into into dollars? What is a non-living wage in, that is to say, they have to work on Capitol Hill for the most part if they're D.C.-based? Right. The living wage is a concept that a lot of folks may be familiar with. Uh, The researchers at MIT have estimated that a living wage in Washington, D.C. is about $42,600. That is a baseline. You know, this is not the most comfortable of wages. This isn't saying that you're going to be able to take luxurious vacations every year or save for retirement. This is what the researchers at MIT estimate is a quote-unquote minimum subsistence wage for an adult with no children in the nation's capital. Yeah, you can't even swing an efficiency and pet worth on that type of salary. And so 70% of the entry-level staff is at this level or 70% of the staff is at that level or below? 70% of staff assistants, so this is one of the most common entry-level positions. Almost every office has one, and this really means that for far too many people, entry-level jobs working on Capitol Hill in a city as expensive as Washington, D.C. are simply not an option. The low pay and high cost of living means individuals from more affluent families are more likely to be working in these roles and relying on financial help from their families. And if they don't earn 42 six, what do they earn? The positions vary. The most common wage, the the median wage for folks in the staff assistant role in 2020 was about 38700 There's also other entry-level positions that don't see salaries that much higher, such as a press assistant, which was $43,900, or a legislative correspondent, which was just $44,000 in 2020. So these are some of the most common entry-level positions in staff. These are the folks who are helping schedule meetings, dealing with constituents, doing the research to help drive the legislative process forward, managing messages between different members of Congress's office. And it is just a very difficult financial position to be in for a lot of young entry-level folks. And I think one of the other major findings that we had in this report is just how bottom-weighted 
the staff on Capitol Hill are. 60% of congressional staff are under the age of 35, and 45% of the staffers in 2020 made less than $60,000. So Congress needs to raise its pay floor for its junior staff to be able to better attract and retain employees from all walks of life. By my calculation, then, if you make $15 an hour, the minimum wage, I believe, is what it is right now in and around D.C., that's $30,000. So they're really not making substantially more than they could at fast food chains. Exactly. Uh, It's a lot of positions, especially in the moment in history that we're in right now, are, are doing a lot to try to attract people and pay competitive wages. And Congress could do a lot more to really step up and make sure that it is offering competitive wages, especially for entry level folks who are dedicated to serving the public interest, who want to do more to make government work and to be able to have the opportunity to come to the nation's capital to serve a member of Congress, even in one of these unglamorous roles, you know, it's hard to be scraping by on the paychecks that they're getting. Yeah, sure. It's not fast food, but they do get to see how the sausage is made. We're speaking with Michael Beckel. He's research director at Issue One. All right. So this is not an unknown thing to Congress itself. What do you propose? Well, Congress would have the opportunity to invest more in itself, to invest more in its staff. Just like any company, you know, any organization, you get what you pay for. So really, Congress needs to invest in itself, including its staff, in order to ensure that it is attracting the best people and paying competitive wages. And every office has a budget. Every office gets to set that budget. And if Congress were to be able to steer more money into the office budgets, they're called MRAs in the vernacular on Capitol Hill. And these are the bank accounts that members get to set their pay. So more money for members could translate into more money for their staff and their junior staff. And far too often we see members of Congress trying to make political points in their rhetoric about how frugal they are in their spending. And really, if they're not spending the money that's allocated for their staff budget, they're hurting themselves, they're hurting their constituents, they're hurting their ability to be as responsive as they can be. And that is money that they should be investing in the infrastructure of their offices. You mentioned earlier, too, that these types of jobs, therefore, tend to attract children of affluent families who, I guess the presumption is, subsidizes them while they're there in Capitol Hill. Do we have any data that suggests that? Do we know the demographic makeup of the staff assistants and press aides and so forth? Well, certainly we know that across the board, the racial diversity on Capitol Hill and socioeconomic diversity on Capitol Hill do not match that of the country writ large. There was a study done by a group called the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies recently that found that Latinos account for 18.5% of the U.S. population, but just 3.8% of top staffers in Senate member offices. Meanwhile, Black Americans, who represent about 13.4% of the population, accounted for only 3.1% of top positions in Senate member offices. So I think 
both parties underemploy staffers of color at high level and entry level positions. And the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies also found that three quarters of House members have no top staff of color in their offices. And by the way, top staff members, the senior people, the chiefs of staff and so on, how much can they earn at the top scales? At the top end of the spectrum, this has also been part of the conversation of late that in August of last year, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced a move that would increase the maximum salary that House staffers could make. So this decision would increase the top bracket from 174000 to about 199000 So this is a step that decouples staff pay from the pay given to members of Congress themselves. For years and years and years, those two things had been in lockstep so that no staffer would earn more than their boss, the member of Congress. But really, at all levels of congressional staff, people know that they can enter the private sector, they can go to K Street, they can take a lobbying job and earn far more than they can on Capitol Hill. And being able to boost staff pay up and down the ladder in every office is a way for Congress to attract good people to continue to work for their offices, to retain that institutional memory, retain that institutional knowledge, help things run smoothly so members don't have to spend so much time training new staff on a recurring basis. And that way, you're really trying to effectively serve your constituents. Well, I guess anything that makes Congress work better would be a good thing. Michael Bakel is Research Director at Issue One. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks again for having us on. We'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, but people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I Talk to people. I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.